this week on the It's a Monkey podcast. The other thing I think companies have to keep an eye on is that the generational expectations are shifting in a dramatic way. And the millennials, they expect all channels to work. They expect to be able to shift channels kind of on demand. And their patience level is so much less. I guess I'm a Gen X. And, you know, even I am incredibly impatient. You know, my mom will go and stand in line at a store. I will never stand in a line. And a millennial not only won't stand in line, but if it's not available online, they're not going to buy it. Good morning, good evening, hello, wherever you are in the world. It is Wednesday, the 5th of April, if you are watching us live on Periscope. And a special hello to you if you're watching us live on Periscope. Friday, the 7th of April, if you um, are listening in your podcast player or perhaps even on YouTube, we add the podcasts on YouTube so you can subscribe there or listen to them there. We don't actually add the video quite yet. My name is Kevin Garber. I am the CEO of Manage Flutter and soon to be Manage Social as well, which is very, very close to alpha release. So close we can we can smell it. Um, as usual, I have some co-hosts with me, also part of Team Manage Flutter, Co-host Kate Frappel, who's design lead at Manage Flutter. Kate, thanks for joining us. It's good to be back again. And we're also going to drag in, kicking and screaming, literally kicking and screaming, uh, Josephine Pinto, who is the business operations manager at Manage Flutter. And we're going to uh, um, have uh, um, some news items um, from her as well. Joe, thanks for joining us. No worries. Glad to be here again. <laughs> <laughs> and um, later on in the show, boy, um, had a really, really fantastic interview last week with Michelle Feaster. Now, Michelle's the CEO of a company called um, UserMind. Now, Michelle worked previously with Ben Horowitz. Now, Ben Horowitz is of Andreessen Horowitz venture capital company fame. Super, super smart guys. Written the book, Hard Thing About Hard Things. And Michelle actually has investment from Ben in her company. And we chat about all sorts of interesting topics about the, um, the centrality of Silicon Valley and why it's important to um, try build a second Silicon Valley, about um, the challenge of, of women in tech, about um, the, uh, the enterprise tech space, about how all businesses are trying to become subscription businesses and, and why that's actually good for business and for the consumers, and a whole lot more. So that's coming up later on in the show, uh, chatting with Michelle Feast. And of course, previously, um, on episode 87 last week, we had a chat with um, Margaret Heffernan, who is an author, an entrepreneur, has ha previously had five businesses, and has a, amazingly has two TED Talks, which are over 2 million views each, and one's nearly three million. And we chatted about team building and hiring, and it was really a fantastic chat, particularly if you're an entrepreneur or CEO or um, are busy building your business. A lot of interesting insights from there. As always, you can email us at podcast at itsamonkey.com. We've been getting some great interviews of people that are suggesting people they want on the show or even offering themselves on the show. So you can always email us or say hi. Let's get straight into the tech news. Always a lot happening in our industry. Um, interesting this week, there was a bit of a milestone um, in, in the Tesla, um, Elon Musk world. Now, of course, Elon Musk, ex-PayPal, ex we've spoken about him on this podcast before. 
and he has multiple businesses, one being Tesla, the electric car company, another one being SpaceX, the reusable rocket company. He's getting involved in another company where you can put electrodes into the brain, which we spoke about on last week's podcast. But interestingly, this week, Tesla, which is one of his companies, the electric car company that is listed, the market capitalization, that's the number of shares times by the share price, which is considered what a company is worth, actually eclipsed that of Ford, right? So Ford's market cap was about um, 45 billion and Tesla notched into the 50 billion for the first time. And it's quite a milestone for a couple of reasons, Kate. One is that Ford sold 2.6 million vehicles last year and Tesla only shipped 76,000 vehicles, but yet the market is deeming that Tesla is more valuable than Ford. Now, this is a very, very interesting thing, right? It's basically saying that the market is viewing that the future of automotive transportation is basically where Tesla is. The market's basically saying, look, Ford is Nokia and Tesla is Apple. Yep. Right, and it's saying that so when when Apple first came out and they sold very few phones, then Nokia were like, "Oh, we're selling 500 million phones a year. We don't have to worry, etc." And um, eventually, Nokia had to try and catch up, and of course, they lost that, and uh, they they don't really exist in the same form anymore. The brand still exists, but I don't um, think think the the phone exists in the same successful way. Now, a similar thing is happening with Tesla, where it's turning into this electric car that's filled with software and is essentially becoming a piece of, you know, a big piece of software in a metal casing. So even though the the numbers are are, are very different, and Ford sold 2.6 million cars and a tiny 67, 76,000 vehicles, the market saying that the future, this trajectory, is going to be um, where it's all at. And also remember the number of vehicles or the number of devices that are sold not, are not necessarily linked with the amount of profit. iPhone sells less phones than Android, but it actually makes most of the profit in the industry. Very true. So Tesla stock is really buoyed by um, the Wall Street's envision of where this is going to go. Like, so similar to Apple, they've sort of backed themselves with all their software and the potential is um, is why their stock's flying upwards. And uh, Tesla even overtook General Motors a couple of hours ago. Oh, is that right? Yes. So, um, so they they're really rocketing on a on a head, and of course, we uh, we talk a bit about stock prices on this podcast, and uh, some of them we own. For instance, I own a bit of Facebook, a bit of Twitter, but uh, don't ever construe whatever we say as financial advice. advice yeah. No one really knows with the stock market. The future is unbelievably difficult to predict. Now, interestingly, about talking about software and um, even the subscription market, which we will later with Michelle. Mark Andreessen, who's the business partner of Ben Horowitz, who Michelle worked for. Mark, Mark Andreessen has written a, a fantastic piece called Software is Eating the World. He wrote it a few years ago. It's become a classic piece. If you're listening to this podcast, uh, have a look up Software is Eating this, the World. And basically his argument is that every single industry is actually becoming a software company, right? You look at transport, Uber, it's a piece of software, right? Travel agents, all the booking online, software. So he argued that every single industry is essentially becoming software, right? And software is eating the world. And now cars and, you know, software is eating the world. I was talking to someone who's in the aviation industry at a dinner the other night. They were saying that, you know, planes essentially fly themselves. 
And it's just that the airports are not all set up to actually guide the planes on landing and takeoff. But, and the psychology of people having no pilots is, is a bit challenging. But um, you know, even the, the transport industry is already there itself. And we spoke with um, a couple of podcasts ago, and when we were talking about Internet of Things, we spoke a bit about cars and transportation and how the cars are generating, not an old car, but a new car generates petabytes, which is thousands of terabytes worth of data each year so new cars are already chock full of software and i think there's apps that you can tap into your car's software and you can and you can get bits and pieces of information already yeah uh, one of our cars at home detects who's driving pretty much and then loops into that person's phone if two of you have programmed your phone into the car it will only detect the drivers interesting what and what car is this uh holden commodore and is it pretty new uh, maybe less than 10 years. Okay. Yeah. So it's still not that new, but the new cars... Um, yeah, they'd be even better. They'd be even better and you can you can track and monitor, and especially from a mechanical point of view, track and monitor everything. And it's all, all electrics. And, of course, Tesla um, being electric as well, it's, um, you know, most of the cars and non-electric cars, that it actually spends most of its power moving itself, moving the engine. Okay. And electric cars, the, the weight is the batteries, but it's, it does actually save still, I believe, the fact that it is a lot lighter. And in Melbourne, they've actually got a, a vehicle, like a little golf cart, that runs on compressed air. It's pneumatic. And that's super light because it doesn't have batteries and it doesn't have an engine. It just runs on compressed air. It's quite fantastic. They obviously haven't discovered how to scale that to a car but it's, it's you know, the cleanest form of energy. Well, you still need a compressor to fill it up with air. So it's it's still energy down the track, you know. How much do you uh, know about the Model 3 coming out at the end of this year? The Tesla? So that's the yeah. that's the cheaper Tesla because I believe, you know, at the moment the Teslas are quite expensive, right? I think this one enters about 35 grand. US. Yep. So that's whatever, 45 Australian, give or take. Um, still pretty expensive, yeah. I mean, it's not a cheap car. It's not a car for the masses, so to speak. Um, but it's cheaper than the existing Tesla, which I think is post 100,000, right? I'm not sure. Yeah. That's why I was asking you. It's, um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, it's a bit of a status symbol um, in, I know, parts of Sydney and I think in Silicon Valley yeah, because they're incredibly fast, right? Zero to 100 is incredibly fast. As an electric car, it was unprecedented. So Elon Musk definitely likes to push the boundaries. Interesting to see where it happens, uh, what happens. And uh, I, I don't really like hardware sort of businesses. So I wouldn't buy Tesla. It's just, um, you know, I mean, they they businesses I don't really understand you know there's a lot of things like the supply chain and where you get your materials from and there's a lot of other links that I don't quite understand and I like to only buy shares of businesses I understand better which tend to be software businesses because that's what I'm involved in fair enough um, that's why although I do have a few Apple shares as well and that's pretty much also a hardware business you know um, anyway that's Tesla um, now of course uh, past week was April Fool's Day and it's become a tradition for a lot of tech companies to publish media releases, I guess. I remember in South Africa on April Fool's Day, they'd publish stories on TV. And I, I remember two in particular. One was that the police force were replacing all their cars with the latest Porsches. 
And that right. was that was pretty good. And of course, as a young kid, I didn't put one and one together. And the second thing was that they've discovered a tree that produces spaghetti, a spaghetti tree as well. And they, of course, they had footage of all of this, so that they huh. created footage of all of this. Oh, that's half of it. Which it's was, believable when you see it. Which is, and especially if you, you you're not aware at the moment that it's April Fools. Anyway, um, Joe Joe's going to contribute to this discussion as well. So just as a matter of introduction, if you're just enjoying the Periscope or the podcast, run us through some of the more interesting um, April Fool's Day initiatives that the tech companies uh, got involved with this year. Yeah, so Snapchat came out with a, uh, a filter that is basically mocks the Instagram interface where your picture would usually be. And then at the top it's got the... Instagram sort of white border with the branding but instead it says Snapchat and underneath it has uh, like your likes, your hearts, right, and it says liked by your mum and one other. So <laughs> inferring basically that um, only your mum likes your stuff on Instagram, oh like nobody's no. on Instagram. So that was Snapchat digging at them. I think it was because it was to get back at Instagram for taking over their the, or taking on their yeah, stories. stories. Yeah, definitely having a poke there. That's probably one of my favourite ones. The second one would be Google Gnome. It's basically a spin-off of Google Home, so a device that sort of connects all the different appliances in your house, um, but for outdoors. So the Gnome turns your hose on and off and tells you which direction the wind is blowing and it's um, quite a sort of cheeky, sarcastic Gnome as well. Yes. There's a whole video to go with it. <laughs> yes, uh, I, I did check out that video. Very funny. Mm. Yeah. Which one did you enjoy? Actually, I really did enjoy that Snapchat one. Yeah. Um, because it's interactive, right? Yeah. Uh, but another one that I thought was a little bit was quite smart was uh, Pet Lexa. So Amazon's <laughs> um, just flipped it around with their Alexa uh, Home, which is the uh, the competition for Google Home. I believe so. Yes. Uh, and basically, you, if you have a pet and your, your dog, for instance, and it barks, uh, Pet Lexa will translate <laughs> what your dog is saying. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think I watched this one too. And it doesn't the uh, the dog uh, uh, barks, um, and they translate the bark into a a command for like a ball to be thrown. <laughs> yes, that's the one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then it knocks down a knocks down a picture frame or something and then uh, Alexa places an order online to replace the picture frame. Yes, very smart. Yes. Very, very smart. <laughs> Actually, I really wouldn't mind having a, a translator for your pet. That'd be great. My, my pet's pretty vocal, my dog. She's um especially as she's getting older, she grumbles a lot. So you kind of already <laughs> understand a little bit what your dog's trying to yeah. say to you <laughs> so maybe we don't need that one day i hope she w wakes up and um talks to me she's getting there <laughs> um another one that i thought was um interesting was duolingo um had an emoji course oh that's interesting yeah how do you teach emojis how do you teach emojis exactly <laughs> so that was um joe pinto who's the business operations manager at uh, manage flitter and kate Frappel. we're going to take a short break and um we're going to come back um, with the interview with michelle feaster who's the ceo of UserMind. And we're going to chat about everything relating to building a startup, being a founder, building a business in Silicon Valley versus outside of Silicon Valley, women in tech, um, what's it like to work with um, Ben Horowitz, and um, we'll be back after the short break. Hi. 
This is Dave from Manage Flitter. Are you interested in growing your Twitter account with real followers? Manage Flitter's Power Mode feature allows you to search for keywords in tweets and bios. It also allows you to copy your competitors' followers and filter out fake accounts. Go to manageflitter.com and sign up for a pro or business plan to start growing your Twitter account today. You're back with the It's a Monkey podcast. My name is Kevin Garber. I am the CEO of Manage Flitter and the co-host of this podcast that comes to you every week or so. And we are always looking for interesting people with a story to tell in our industry. And it's not often that I can uh, get someone at the end of my Skype line that was responsible or involved with the $1.6 billion acquisition. Uh, I'm excited to say I've got Michelle Feaster at the end of my line, who's the co-founder and CEO of UserMind, but was also involved in the Opsware acquisition by HP Software for $1.6 billion. Now, Opsware actually just popped into my mind when I was preparing this interview. It was uh, juggling my memory, and I was like, where did I hear that name from? Now, of course, there's a very famous book that all founders and wannabe founders have read called The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. If you haven't read it, go and buy it today. It's a fantastic read. And Ben actually talks about... Um, when he was involved in Opsware. And I've, uh, at the end of my Skype line, Michelle Feaster is uh, someone who was right knee deep in, in in all of those exciting times. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Now, CEO of UserMind. Now, we don't talk that much about enterprise style, for lack of a better word, um, companies. Do you want to give our uh, listeners a, a very big picture overview of what UserMind does, bearing in mind they tend to be uh, consumer tech people that aren't necessarily uh, up to speed with all the, the, the lay of the landscape of enterprise software? Yeah, sure. I think um, you know what UserMind does is something I think all consumers can relate to. So I think every consumer in the world has had the frustration of you know, logging into their bank's mobile app, uh, going into a web app or calling into a call center um, and having to kind of constantly repeat, you know, what their problem was or what their challenges were and not or even then, you know, going into a store and not having the web, their their kind of history, follow them around. So um, UserMind is, yes, we make enterprise software. Uh, we describe what we do as a customer engagement hub. Um, but really what we do is we help enterprise companies connect all those disconnected systems so that the users can have a much better end-to-end customer experience. And and really kind of what that turns into is, you know, if you're on the web and you're struggling to kind of add a new payee to your bank account, UserMind can detect that um, and actually get a call center person to reach out and call you proactively. Um, you know, if, you're, if you've opened a ticket, we can suppress all those annoying email messages so you're not getting spammed with marketing emails while you're struggling with a particular problem. Uh, so we, we really, we think one of the biggest challenges to consumers getting what they want from companies is that those companies have tons and tons of siloed disparate technology. And so we help connect that um, so that consumers can have the kinds of experiences that they really crave. Can you please do that for the medical industry? I am so tired of filling out my details a million times at each sort of little checkup or anything you go to. It just just drives me nuts. Yeah, isn't it crazy? You know, it's interesting. So when I started the company, you know, you never know what verticals are going to pop first. I think that's true for any founder. Um, And, you know, what's been interesting to me is... Uh, the, the verticals that have moved the fastest for us have been technology companies, right? That's kind of a no-brainer. You know, uh-huh. they tend to be more digital. 
Um, financial services, you know, those guys are getting disrupted big time by, you know, young entrants. Um, you know, millennials really are open to not using big banks. Um, and, and interestingly enough, kind of manufacturing companies, like people with really complicated supply chains. So I think it'll be interesting to see when it hits the medical field. You know, I'm not sure they're going to be early adopters. But but look, we believe our market's huge because we think customer experience is a, is a real core competence of the next 50 years. You know, as every company really is going completely digital, right? And they want, they're, they're able to interface with you and I directly over all the you know, mobile, social, web, you know, all these channels. Um, increasingly, companies are going to grow or shrink, you know, and win or lose based upon the customer experience they deliver because, you know, the competition is one click away, right? It's so cheap to start a software company that I think, you know, if companies don't really win and delight their customers, they, they're going to go out of business. So, you know, although what we do is a little esoteric, I think it's something probably every person can relate to um, and, and would agree that, like, boy, if, if a company really could do that effectively, you know, you'd be a customer for life. Um, and that, that's what our customers are aiming to try and achieve. And no one ever says, I wish that company gave me less service, right? Yeah, yeah, right. So I have a theory, you know, Benioff, I often say Benioff is the godfather of user minds. So, you know, Benioff invented SaaS. He's the CEO of uh, Salesforce, if someone's listening and doesn't know that name, Mark Benioff. Yeah, sorry, sorry not to give context. Um, yeah, so he, you know, when, when Mark Benioff kind of leaves, um, you know, Siebel and he invents uh, Salesforce, um, he invented a lot of really interesting ideas. So one of his ideas was the cloud, right? The idea that you could not install software on-prem. You know, he was the guy who said no software. You know, so the fact that we all sell SaaS apps now is is largely due to his innovation. But, you know, his other innovation was a business model innovation. So he's also really, you know, one of the business leaders who invented the idea of subscription. You know, the idea that we don't pay an upfront license fee for software, we pay this kind of yearly subscription for support um, and maintenance. And, you know, from my point of view, I actually think people don't talk about subscription enough. And the reason I think that is increasingly, I feel like most companies are becoming relationship businesses. Meaning, you know, if you think about a bank, you start that, you open a bank account and you have a relationship with that bank over many, many, many years. Um, and, and actually it's funny, I, you know, I, I travel, I used to travel more abroad than I do now. Uh, but you know, I, I would go overseas and my, my credit cards kept getting shut down and my bank kept trying to tell me you have to call ahead of time and, you know, tell us. And I kept telling them, can't you just flag me as like a high, you know, a high travel profile, right? So I don't have whitelist to, you. Right? whitelist me. So I don't have to deal with that. Um, and, and you know, what's interesting is I ended up switching banks. Mm -hmm. It sounds very small, but like take that one annoying customer service issue. And I moved all of my money, um, not just my checking account, but my credit cards, my money market accounts to a new bank whom I've been with since who I have not, don't have that problem with. Um, and so from my point of view, there's a real relationship with the idea of customer experience and customer longevity. And, you know, part of why I reference the idea of subscription is subscription businesses focus on lifetime value. You know, the theory behind a subscription business is that you you make all your money over time with a customer and you want to overinvest up front because if you can retain a customer for another year, two years, three years, it's actually disproportionately valuable because all the upfront cost is in customer acquisition, right? The marketing, the, you know, the, the switching costs. Um, and so my kind of pet theory is that every enterprise, every company, banks, 
you know, Amazon, right? Look at that with Prime, right? Banks are, are offering us so many other subscription services. Every business is going to become a subscription business, all about long-term relationships and ongoing purchase. Um, and I think in that world, um, you know, customer experience becomes incredibly strategic. So sorry if that's a little bit of an aside. <laughs> no, that's okay. And as and as a corollary of that, I would say because every business is a relationship business, every business is also a people business. I think in our industry, in the tech industry, it's so easy to get caught up in cloud and AWS and uh, refactoring and node versus PHP. But I, I keep on saying we are a people business, right? We have people that build our product. We have customers. We happen to be enabling everything with technology. But every business is a people business. Yeah. Well, you know, the other really interesting thing about business is generational shifts. So, you know, I don't I don't know how much, you know, the millennial shift is is kind of in discussion if it's top of mind um, or not. But from my point of view, you know, the, the, the millennial generation represents a step function paradigm shift in um, in digital you know, fluency. I mean, the, that generation is, is digital natives kind of multitasking, they're really able to be omni-channel. So, you know, my, I have a lot of young engineers in, in my company who fall into that demographic. And it's really fascinating when you watch them code or work, they just effortlessly move between their IDE and they're on Slack and they're on their mobile phone doing something else. And so, you know, the other thing I think companies have to keep an eye on is that the generational expectations are shifting in a, in a dramatic way. And, and the millennials, they expect all channels to work. They expect to be able to shift channels kind of on demand. Um, and their patience level is so much less. I think, you know, um, you know, I'm, uh, I guess I'm a Gen X. Um, and, you know, even I am, am incredibly impatient. You know, my mom will go and stand in line, you know, at a, at a store. I will never stand in a line. And, and, and a millennial not only won't stand in line, but if it's not available online, they're not going to buy it. And so I think, you know, that's the other really interesting idea to your point about it's all a people business is that when your buyers and your customers expectations shift generationally, companies have to transform to meet that challenge, um, you know, or that opportunity, if you will. Michelle, let's talk about um, being a female uh, CEO and um, co-founder. There's, there's the cliche of, you know, the Silicon Valley, um, you know, go to Stanford, you know, um, be some flavor of, of, of a bro, so to speak, <laughs> tap into yeah. the network and, yeah. and start up something, you know, in San Francisco in the Valley. Talk to me about your experience as a female founder that, that's not from Stanford's, not in Silicon Valley. You're obviously having, um, you know, quite a, quite a bit of a level of success. Your, your list of investors is, is a real testament. Um, whilst, whilst the investment is only the beginning of it, um, you know, the class of investor like, um, you know, Andreessen Horowitz and uh, Charles River Ventures, I believe, as well. I mean, they, yep. they, they have excellent track records. Yep. Um, so talk through us about... How's your path been both how, how you got where you are and, and any unique challenges, I guess, as a female founder that's, that's not from the, the Valley and not from Stanford? Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a great set of questions. I'll try to unpack it. So, you know, maybe a, a couple minutes on my background, how I got to founding, because I think that speaks a lot to who my investors are. It's all, it's all relationship based. So, um, you know, I dropped out of college. I spent a few years, believe it or not, I spent almost five years. I, I worked in a gas station and then ended up working my way up to running a bunch of those. 
I got my break in tech in the boom in 98 um, and and went into pre-sales originally. So I was in, you know, in the field kind of carrying a bag, helping sales, helping customers POC and evaluate technology at the time. Um, and I ended up at Mercury Interactive. That was that was kind of my my life changing, um, you know, company. I stayed there almost eight years. So, you know, I went in that in that context. I went from pre-sales, and and I, I got really lucky there. I ended up working with a lot of big companies, GE and Fidelity, who wanted to partner with Mercury on their on their larger vision of their company. And so I ended up working really closely with the product organization, and joined the product team. And that was kind of the second great break of my life. Right, one was probably getting into tech. Two was was you know getting into product, getting out of the field, um, and kind of finding my passion. You know the thing I should be doing with my life. I, I like I like creating things from nothing, um, whether that's software or that's teams, um, and so that that was really you know a seminal moment in my life. Um, and uh, and so Mercury eventually gets acquired by HP. Um, my boss called me and said, Hey, you know, you're one of my glass breakers. You're one of my fixers. There's this really broken data center automation business. Do you want to fix it? And so that one con that phone call led to acquiring Opsware. Um, and, and that's how I met, you know, Ben, uh, Horowitz and Mark Andreessen. Um, and you know, Ben became my boss. So what a, what a blessing, right? He joined HP software. He became my boss. And in that book that you referenced, which is amazing, he references a management technique he calls Freaky Friday, mm-hmm. or he swaps execs. And so he had me take over product in his business. So I, I worked for him. Can you imagine this? What a life-changing opportunity. I worked for Ben Horowitz, directly managing his old company um, and, and, and leading that integration. And, you know, Ben said to me, why aren't you in a startup? You know, why are, why are you still at a big company? And so he, I give him a lot of credit for being the first person to make me think, why am I not doing it? Um, and so when he left HP, I went to my last startup. Uh, it was a, a startup where the CEO uh, was a Mercury guy. Um, and, you know, I was there from employee 17 to 500. Um, what a life-changing experience, right? That, that, that company just went public. Um, and so, first of all, I would say I'm, I'm probably not a typical founder, not just that I'm a, a woman, but that I didn't found in my 20s. You know, I, I, I spent many years kind of learning from incredible product people, watching people build amazing companies. Um, and if you look at my investors, right, so one, clearly, I didn't know when I, you know, led the Opsra acquisition. I had no idea that Ben and Mark were going to found Andreessen Horowitz. I had no idea they were going to completely reinvent venture capital on some level. Um, and so, you know, when I went to fundraise, when I, when I had done, so when I started the company, by the way, I, I didn't just have an idea. I interviewed about 350 people, um, to net out the product idea. So, you know, although I was very blessed, you know, to have kind of a sponsor in Ben, you know, if you look at my investors, it's all relationship based. So Charles River Ventures, who you mentioned, uh, they were very close to the Mercury leadership. Um, and, uh, and in fact, uh, they invested. So Yuval Scarlot used to run product. He was my great mentor before Ben. You know, CRV led um, their Series B, I think. Um, and so I met CRV through the Mercury team. And in fact, uh, my former CEO of Mercury and the head of products, you know, had bre- breakfast with them and said, we'd put our own money into Michelle's company. You have to meet with her. Um, so I would say, you know, a big factor, I think, in my ability to raise money is one, a long track record. You know, I Mercury was very successful software company known to have great products. I think the market thought the Opsra acquisition was a good idea. Um, you know, I didn't just lead it; I built that plan. Um, and you know, Aptio, I, I, you know, that now that's a public company, right? I think I was part of that. So I think a piece of it is investors look at risk, um, and I have a strong history. 
Um, and another piece of it is I, you know, I've built a really great set of relationships with people who went to bat for me um, to help me get those meetings and to, you know, help kind of convince these investors that I, you know, that I would do well, you know, I would do right by them. So um, I think it's all network for me. That's uh, kind of my story. Now to, to, to bring it back to being a, a woman, you know, what a blessing to have the mentors I've had. You know, I feel like, you know, you know, people say it all the time, but it's really true. You know, in my experience, anytime you kind of break through a glass ceiling in your career, you know, any big jump, right? You, your first manager job, your first director job, your first exec job, your first founding gig, you need people to stick their necks out and say, you know, you're worth taking a risk on. I think, you know, no matter how good your idea is, no matter, no matter how much of a demo you do, you know, the people who are investing in you are investing in you as a person first and foremost. Um, and so I think I've been incredibly blessed to have these incredible mentors, you know, who have opened doors for me at every level. You know, if you've all hadn't called me and said, hey, do you want to do you want to try and fix this data center automation thing? There'd be no Opsware acquisition. There'd be no life changing relationship for me with Ben. And if Ben hadn't said, you know, both go do a startup. You know, Ben told me, go found a company. What are you doing? What are you waiting for? Um, you know, beyond just the the money, I mean, I think like my mentors have changed my life. They changed my worldview. They kind of made me think I could do things I didn't know I could. Um, so that's kind of my life story. I think, you know, back to being a woman, um, you know, I think in general it's harder. You know, I, you know, it's funny. I read Lean In. Mm-hmm. Uh, people ask me sometimes, like, what are the books that blew, you know, blew your mind? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think Ben's book is pretty incredible. I think Lean In is pretty amazing. I mean, when I read, and I read that late in my career, by the way, I read that when I was already an exec. Uh, I was already leaving, uh, deciding to leave Aptio. I don't remember where I was, but just the, the amount of factual data, you know, behind, you know, the, the Harvard Business Review study that said, you know, you can mail the same business case to VCs. And if you just make the, the CEO a woman, um, you know, the, the, the deal is like twice as likely to get funded by a guy as it is if it's a woman, you know, to me, there's, there's a lot of data about the prevalence of kind of unconscious bias. And so I I think it's a real thing. Um, I think I was very blessed to have incredibly strong sponsors that helped me navigate that dynamic. Um, by the way, I also think that, um, there's kind of a double whammy, which is if you look at most women founders who get invested in or funded, it's in consumer. You know, so I'm actually a doubly rare animal in that um, there's really almost no female founders. I mean, in enterprise, you know, it's like, boy, it's Diane Green and, you know, it's uh, Paula Long and it's, uh, you know, Meg Whitman, maybe you. But like there's not a thousand of us. There's Kylie Fiorina as well. I mean, she's not a founder, but um, she led HP, right? Yep. Yeah. She, uh, she was, she led HP. She's more of a salesperson than a pure founder, but mm-hmm. yeah, you know, I think, um, I think my network was instrumental. I'd also say, you know, as I've reflected on it, people come and ask me, you know, like what's the key. And I always tell people just go found, you know, so I would say it's interesting. Um, and Ben gave me this advice, you know, Ben, Ben has always given me such incredible advice. It was harder for me to be an executive, to be honest. Um, I found, you know, one of the things that struck me about lean in was, there's all this research that said as women become more powerful, you become less liked. Mm. And as men become more powerful, they're more liked. And, you know, it's amazing. I, I really found that. Um, I feel like, you know, my least, you know, I wouldn't say successful role, but like the role where I was least loved and least understood. And certainly from my point of view, um, you know, I had the least relationships was my exec tenure. I feel like it, I got to a level where I saw that in action 
And a part of it was, you know, my own kind of like life stage, emotional maturity. So, you know, I, t- I can take ownership for my own part in that. You know, Ben once told me, he said, at one point, you can't work for anybody else. But he also said, Michelle, one of the most important things is that you need to create your own culture. Um, so so as a woman, not only am I kind of a, in an enterprise where there are a few women, but, uh, you know, Mercury was an Israeli company. And I think I learned in my young years a very direct style of leadership, kind of a very no BS style of leadership. Um, and, you know, that served me so much less well. The more senior I got uh, when I left Mercury, when it was a more, I think, American culture, it just didn't work that well for me. And what's been incredible to me is in founding my company, everyone who works here has chosen to work for me. And the culture is pretty incredible. And and so I think women often are in a catch-22. It's why I think founding is something more and more women should just do, is I do think you hit a point where it's really difficult to be successful as, a, as, a, as an exec. I think women can be very successful as managers and directors, but at a certain point, I think the dynamics really work against you. And if you have it in you, I think if you can found you know, you have to get money. Um, but, but if you can pull that off, you can build a culture that reflects you. And it, and, and like, it's interesting, my leadership team is half women. Um, and you know, that's unusual. I mean, it wasn't by intention. I think, you know, I think it's, some of it is, you know, women are, you know, attracted to the idea of working for women. I think a part of it is that, um, I really value a very diverse team. I think decisions are better when there's a diverse team. Um, but, you know, I, I, um, I definitely think being a woman at the highest levels, when you hit being an executive, I don't, I don't know that it's as big a, you know, it's probably a small gap when you're in your earlier stages of your career, but it becomes really, really pronounced. Um, and I think if women hit that point, I would encourage them to just get out and found because, you know, what's the worst that can happen? You might fail in your startup, but at least you're not failing due to a bunch of social dynamics that make it almost impossible to succeed. So, um, Anyways, I hopefully that answered your question. Or got you, your comment about that, uh, you know, w- women are predominantly or get, get drawn to consumer tech. One of the things that I was um, quite impressed with when I've spent a lot of time in New York is in the New York tech scene, there's a, an incredible diversity of female founders, even including, in, you know, very opaque, obscure technologies like the blockchain, for instance. Yeah. And um, yeah. very, very encouraged by, by, by the diversity of, of companies that females are founding there. I think if, if someone listening to this podcast, I think what's so great about your story is, you know, not to be bound by by narratives, dominant narratives. You know, you, you don't have to be a, a, a MBA student from Stanford to go and right. raise money and, and, and do a business, you know, put together a business. Even if you're not in the US, or where, there's no better time to create something anything you know start aggregating content or you know start a job sport anything just um you know like you i'm very much uh, encouraging of people to just just go and just start something have a play and that's when you that's when you really really learn and that's when you really get to understand yourself i mean it's a real journey into yourself it's a real tool into yourself being being a founder and and what 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 i find is you know out you know we're a small team of only 12 13 people and and we have um, some incredible women on our team. And what, what I find so interesting is that they're incredibly loyal, incredibly hardworking, but almost humble to their own detriment. 
um, you know, t- totally awkward when I, uh, when I give them a pat on the back or, or try to highlight how good they are at something. And I, and I say to them just – and that could also be a little bit the Australian culture, which has a humility at its core. So there may be other factors at play there. Um, but they definitely are, are not totally aware of their own um, outstanding competence, which, which sometimes even frustrates me a little bit. Yeah. Well, you know, that resonates. So two things you said resonate with me personally. So one, you know, startups, I think, are an incredible, uh, not just professional journey, but as you said, personal journey. So I I would agree with you. I feel like I've learned more about myself in the last four years doing UserMind than in the rest of my life put together. And, you know, in, uh, in Ben's book, one of the things he talks about when you're a CEO or a founder is you have to manage your own psychology. And, you know, I tell everyone, you know, factually, I do a lot of the same things I've done before in my life. You know, I hire people, I make product decisions, you know, I go work with customers, I sell software, but I'm doing that in an emotional environment that's just so high stakes because there's no safety net and every decision matters so much more. You know, I remember when I was hiring our first engineer and, you know, I got turned down and like I was was crushed, right? I was so, so crushed by that. And it was because, number one, it was really personal. Uh, you know, certainly it felt like, gosh, it's my idea and it, it was rejected. Um, but just like the level of emotion, you know, they say the highest of highs, the lowest of lows. And so, you know, I really do believe it's been a journey learning, looking into myself and learning about managing my own psychology. And, you know, four years in, I feel like I'm much calmer. You know, I've grown so much. My ability to manage uncertainty, my ability to acknowledge my own fears and, and not project them outward, right? But to try to rise to the occasion of the leadership opportunity I've been given. So that, that definitely resonates with me. You know, the second thing you said that I was affected by is, you know, kind of women being humble. I know personally that, you know, I have struggled with fear um, throughout my whole career. You know, when I left Aptio, you'd think, gosh, Michelle, you know, Ben's telling you, Ben's telling you, you should found a company. You know, I was the I was the, the head of products at a startup that went, you know, when I joined was a million and, you know, I left and it was 80, you know, on its way to IPO. You know, everyone there would have said I was I was, you know, an instrumental team member. Right. It was a team effort, but I was an instrumental part of that success. And, you know, I literally spent three to four months, Kevin, talking to people, trying to decide if I was ready to found. Um, and, you know, I talked to probably, I don't know, 50 to 100 companies and you know, everything from like you know, two people in a garage with their dog all the way up to GitHub because I was really excited about what GitHub was doing, you know, kind of the full spectrum, just trying to see what got me excited before I decided what to do next. And, you know, at the end of the day, I kind of netted it out and I'm like, well, there's only one or two CEOs I'd really want to work for. Um, And so I kind of flipped that question around and I I was saying to myself, you know, well, why Which which are those CEOs, by the way? (laughs) Uh, Well, one of them is Paula Long. She's the CEO of Data Gravity. I'm I'm a huge fan uh, she's just an incredible enterprise software founder. Uh, she just really wowed me. Um, and I thought I'd be a good match for her because she came from the engineering side. I thought I thought I could really, you know, add skills. We, we'd be, I think, a one plus one was three. Um, and then the other, unfortunately, he was the former CEO of Chef Software here in uh, in Seattle. And unfortunately, he since passed away. He had, uh, he had cancer, which I didn't know at the time. But um but yeah, I mean, I, I, I felt like, and from him, I just, he built a huge uh, software, a huge services company called Avanade, and I was just really inspired by his leadership style, and I thought he could make me a better leader. Um, you know, I could, I could really grow. Uh, but, you know, I, I kind of asked myself the question, why, why is it that if I really can only work for a couple people, 
why aren't I willing to just do it? You know? And, and when I sat down and really thought about it, it was that I was afraid and I didn't have a really good reason why. I mean, I had all the skills I had, you know, so much support. Um, and I, and I do think there's something about that imposter syndrome slash, you know, just the behavior of like putting yourself out there that I think, um, you know, I think I struggled with it my whole life. And I think many women, um, kind of go through that same thing. And so I don't, you know, I don't want to like just over rotate on being a woman, but, but I, that's definitely something that resonates with me when you say, you know, they're humble. I think women have a hard time accurately assessing our strengths and weaknesses. You know, I think we tend to over rotate to the weakness side, um, and to kind of undervalue our leadership and contribution. Um, and I think there's definitely points in your career when that holds you back because you got to just jump in, right? To your point, found, just do it. It's scary. Or like take that job, roll the dice. Um, so I, I know that for me, it's been a journey. Um, and, you know, I, I tell everybody when you found, you're going to struggle with fear. And, and if you're not prepared for that um, and how that's going to affect you, um, you know, I think it's I think it's a it's a shock to a lot of founders. I think that's actually one of the the thing that Ben's book really exposed. One of the reasons I admire it, even though I knew a lot of the facts already, is his relentless desire to talk about the truth of founding. You know, founding is we tend to glamorize. You know, Mark Zuckerberg and you know successful founders, and it's awesome. But the amount of like struggle and pain and stress and accountability, which doesn't mean anyone shouldn't do it. You know, you should do it. It's worth it. You'll grow, you know, to your point, you're going to grow like crazy. You're going to look back and be like, it's the best thing I ever did. I mean, I, I think, I think it's one of the best decisions I've made in my life. Um, and I don't want to underestimate and undersell to people that the growth comes through. Ben, Ben once told me for some people, he said, Michelle, maximum discomfort equals maximum growth. Mm -hmm. And so to me, the startup, the reason I've grown so much is startups are uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. I've had to learn on every vector. When, I, when I'm having a tough day, one of the things I do is I, I go to the quotes from Hard Things About Hard Things. <laughs> and, he's, and there's some great ones, you know, where he talks about, um, you know, you always have options. And when they were about a list and, and, and they weren't hitting revenue targets and the market was failing and, you know, they had options. And, and it's yeah. simple little things like that. And if I'm having a tough day and something hasn't worked out, we always got options, you know. And, and, and on the CEO points as well, you know, I think in, in so many ways it's an absolute absolute privilege, which I'm sure you will agree. But yeah. as Kevin Rose, who the founder of Dig, he also says, you know, he wouldn't wish being a CEO on his worst enemy. I mean, it's, it's, it's the glamour of it is, is, is very minimal. And it is, it is tough. It is, it is really, really, really tough. Um, at the best of times, I mean, we, we bootstrapped, we got a different set of problems. You've got a, a set of high profile, brilliant investors. I mean, just, um, you know, people may be interested that Charles River Ventures were one of the first investors in Twitter, even before Twitter was Twitter and when it was audio and a podcast company. So, yeah. and of course, Andreessen Horowitz, and I'm sure the the pressure of, of, of having such a pedigree of investors brings its own set of, 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 of pressures as well. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, you know, look, I think most of us who have worked really hard to be successful, you know, I don't want to let anyone down, you know, and I feel like my investors individually, you know, my, the, the board members I have, you know, made a bet on me and on us and on the idea. And, you know, I think, I think they, you know, so the Valley, one of the things I love about Silicon Valley is the comfort with failure. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, objectively, Kevin, I know that my investors, 
you know, if user mind completely failed, in their mind, that was always a possibility. Do you think they're becoming a little bit too comfortable with failure? There's all this failure porn blog out there and, you, you know, you've got you, a bit of glamorize. It's almost like overcompensating, glamorizing failure. You haven't made it until you failed at least three times. Are, <laughs> are, are we taking a little bit too far? You know, um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like on the one hand, you know, now that I've been, now that I'm four years in, you know, I could give you a list of mistakes, Kevin, that it's incredible. And I'm sure you have the same story, right? Where, you know, best information you had at the time, best judgment call you could make. And, you know, if you could roll back in time, you would do it differently. And so I think, you know, from my point of view, it's good that we allow for failure because I feel like, you know, the intersection of like, did you find a big enough market? Did you build a right enough product? And can you, can you monetize? I mean, it's almost like this, like perfect storm, you know, the amount of things that have to go right for there to be success to me just inherently means no matter how good the team, no matter how good the idea, no matter how much money, it's a, it's a really brutally hard thing to make it succeed because so many things have to succeed altogether, right. For the startup to succeed. So on the one hand, I'm really, really appreciative that, that, you know, there's a culture of saying, we get it. It's really hard. It's acceptable to fail. And and by the way, I do think there's a flip side of that, which is I know that if I were founding again, mm-hmm. the lessons I've learned, it's not the failure, right? It's not the intrinsic outcome. I think it's a very that important I, point. Yep. Right. I've learned so much, right? Mm-hmm. You and I in founding have learned so many things that probably, you know, I think so. I think if I did it again, I'd be better at it. I'd make fewer mistakes. Um, and so I think I probably would have a likely, you know, a better likelihood of succeeding. But, you know, I don't think it's about failure. I think it's if the founders, if the failure transforms you right back to your idea about our personal growth journey, if success or failure, if this, if the founder has grown and learned, you, you know, you probably are going to do better the next time. And so that I really appreciate. Um, I do agree with you that like, you know, it's funny, Andreessen for a while, they talked about um, fruit fly experiments. You know, hey, people are throwing around a ton of money at these consumer ideas that are kind of fruit fly experiments. Um, and, and I think there are times when there is a little bit of a bubble and, and people are kind of throwing money at kind of really silly ideas. Um, but, you know, overall, I'll, I'll tell you, one of the things I really love about technology is I think, you know, I think there's these massive kind of mega shifts in um, work itself, right? So you go back to like, the industrial revolution was the last mega shift in work. Um, probably before that was like cities were a mega shift in work. Um, and, and, you know, we're now in the information economy. We're in the middle of this kind of mega shift where, you know, people who can, who can create software abstractions are disproportionately valued in the economy. You know, from my point of view, one of the things I really hope is that if we can figure out how to make more innovation happen, you know, like, and if, if, if them spending too much money in the Valley is part of that, man, I hope we can figure out how to create other Silicon Valleys. You know, I'm, I'm really increase convinced this, that, Increase the speed of iteration, right? Yeah. You know, I'm really convinced that for my children, or my, I don't have children, but like if I had children or my children's children, for, for the future of, the, of, of every country, we have to figure out how to democratize the white collar work skills, right? How do we, and, and part of that is like democratizing the money 
right? That's a I mean, big question. Get- wow, that is that 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 challenge is very bold and important, and uh, we need we need the likes of. Um, um, Andreessen and, and, and Ben um, dealing with that. And I know, I, I know Mark Andreessen's very bullish on the blockchain and the blockchain yeah. could, could be a step in that direction, right? Yeah. 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 No, so I, I am, you know, part of why I am excited about, um, you know, software in general, part of why, by the way, I found it in Seattle is like, I'm really hopeful there'll be a second Valley that will emerge somewhere. Uh-huh. So, you know, Kind of, I'm not so bothered by the failure part of Silicon Valley. I think it's uh, Silicon Valley. I think it's you know largely positive. Um, you know, I get a little bothered when people say things like, "Well, you know, we, we don't fund unless you're in the valley." Yeah. And and like try being really, in Australia. I can't even imagine, <laughs> right? I can't even imagine. But but think about it. If to me, part of the issue is that we don't have a second valley. Mm-hmm. So. You know, I, I really think Seattle has a possibility to become one. You know, you know, if you look at the valley, how did the Silicon Valley become the valley? Well, there were two nurse trees, right? There was, um, you know, HP and Silicon Graphics, mm-hmm. and they brought all these amazing people to the valley, and then they all diaspora, they all left, and it's all these diasporas of founders, right? So these kind of tech companies become vortexes that bring people in, and then you can see them spit out all these new founders who create a ton of new companies. And Silicon Valley just hit this kind of perfect storm where it's so much talent in the same place and so much money in it to invest in that talent that you get this incredible innovation economy. And, you know, one of my beliefs is that um, opportunity will be more democratized if we can build a second valley. Because I think more harmful than the myth of failure, like in the valley, is the myth that the valley is the only place it can happen. Yeah. You know, when I look at Seattle, so I've, I've been here six years now, and I think it's starting to happen here. You know, we we have Microsoft and we have Amazon as our nurse trees. Sure. You know, we've had a number of really good exits, Zulily, Tableau, Aptio, and there's probably seven or eight more. And 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 now, you, you know, you can see this ecosystem of user minds, right, where there's so many more startups. And so one of my big hopes is that if one more geography, like the minute you can have a second nearly as good valley, you can have a thousand, right? Like you'll never have, it'll be so hard to convince people that it could happen in Australia unless you can at least have a second one in the United States to me. And I actually think the minute you get a number two, the fallacy it's all break, of, break open. Yeah. So it's a big part of why I, um, and I mean, there's lots of other practical reasons. I think our development pool is awesome here. The quality of life is great. It's cheaper than the Bay, but you know, to be honest, I, I really, really hope that like we can break that myth here um, I hope we're part of that because I think the minute that happens, so much opportunity, right? If the money can go everywhere, then then there's so much opportunity created broadly geographically. You know what I mean? Um, and I think it has cultural implications. I think it has, you know, implications in terms of like quality of life. Um, so I, I, I feel really strongly about that. I really hope that that happens in my lifetime, whether it's Seattle or somewhere else. And, you know, I hope that we're a part of that larger movement uh, because I think that to me, it gives me, you know, creates more meaning uh, to me in terms of like, what is user mind participating in, right? It's not just building a company. It's a fantastic point. And you've, you've even got a whole continent of Africa where, where I'm from originally, where people are, are, are so entrepreneurial and so passionate to to enable change. Michelle, I know time is not on our side. The one request I do have, can you ask Mark Andreessen to start tweeting again, please? <laughs> 
Yeah, I'll definitely, I'll definitely uh, mention it next time I see him. I, I, he's a pretty incredible tweeter. I'll tell you that guy. He was the inventor of the tweet storm, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think he single-handedly did it. Yeah, you know, I think you know it's kind of an interesting thing. I mean, I'm not super active on social media, uh-huh. but you know, it's 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 something I ponder. You know, because I feel like social media is incredible if you do it right. Um, what an amazing thing that we all got visibility to his thought process, right? Uh, it was just it was just inc- it was just fantastic, and I think there's a lot of people that would really really love him back and we learned so much I, i've got a list on my twitter account called startup tech where i, I put uh, smart vcs and founders and that, and that sort of yeah. you know i keep that open during my day and i'm, I'm learning the whole time and yeah. i learned so much yeah. from him yeah you know and you know the, the the challenge i think is that for any company or brand there's a risk too is if you take a controversial position on social people can hammer you with it mm. and uh i i i think it's a real i don't think we figured social media out. I mean, whether it's, you know, the, the impact of social media on the elections or on fake news or just the risk people take. I mean, the amount of backlash now that's capable in the social channels, vicious. I think, right. It's vicious. And mm. so, you know, I don't, I don't know the answer, but I, you know, I think it's a shame when, you know, the level of kind of backlash takes away the opportunity for all of us to benefit from, you know, whether it's Mark or Ben or any, you know, te- you know, I love Aaron Levy. I mean, I don't know if you follow him. Sure, but I sure. Think- Founder of Box, right? Yeah, I think he's mm. phenomenal. I mean, I, I think he's always got a provocative point of view that whether I agree with him or disagree with him, he always tweaks my thought process, you know? And I, I, th- I think I'm hoping the new generation, the millennials, maybe will will uh, have a level of maturity where they realize that that part of, uh, important part of democracy is that engaging debate and we lose out exactly as your point if we get too vicious and we land up chilling speech boom yeah we lose out on all those benefits that flow so if you disagree just make sure that the debate continues to move forward michelle i know you've got a hard stop so i'm gonna i'm gonna leave it there i've really loved talking with you um michelle feaster is the co-founder and ceo of user mind Uh, we're going to put links to um, all your bits and pieces on the show notes i really appreciate your time today um it's been a fascinating story, and thanks for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. It was very much my pleasure. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by CheckDog. Use CheckDog to easily review and monitor your website for spelling errors, broken links, and broken images, all with the push of one button. CheckDog can also automatically monitor your website and notify you of newly introduced spelling errors. Go to checkdog.com forward slash podcast to receive 50% off your first month subscription. Checkdog.com, helping the world's leading websites keep their content error-free. Kate, as I mentioned in the interview with Michelle, um, The Hard Thing About Hard Things is one of my favorite books of all times because it is just raw and the quotes from that book are fantastic. If you are an entrepreneur or wannabe entrepreneur, read that book and you'll just see how tough it can be sometimes and um, the the roller coaster of it. So being able to work with Ben Horowitz must have been fantastic. He's a super smart guy. The fact that Michelle's got an in, um, that he's investing in her business is terrific. She's wonderfully smart. Lots of Lots of areas of uh, topics and discussions that we can that we could go on for a little while about. Definitely, he's 
Is he the author of this book you're speaking of? He's the author of the book and he's the, um, the co-founder with Mark Andreessen of Andreessen Horowitz, very well-known um, venture capital company in Silicon Valley. Mark Andreessen, of course, invented the modern web browser, Netscape. He was the creator of Netscape. Cool. And very, very smart guy and um, investor in many businesses and on the board of Facebook and, you know, a bunch of super smart guys. They have a podcast, um, their company, they publish interesting um, um, blog articles. Mark Andreessen used to be very big on Twitter um, and and he invented what's called, as we discussed in the interview, um, the, the tweet storm. And um, You mentioned at the end of the interview that he doesn't use Twitter very much he, anymore. He made one statement that's was a bit political and controversial that got him into trouble. And then he disappeared from Twitter for a while saying he's taking a break. And then I see he's deleted all his tweets. And then I think he tweeted saying if people want him to answer a question, they can make a donation to charity. And if he accepts that the question, the charity will get the money. If not, the money will get returned, which was interesting as well. Um, And it's a real shame. He used to tweet really interesting insights about everything from leadership to raising money to all sorts of things and um i don't know maybe he just you know some of these high profile people just get hammered on twitter sometimes and it's a real shame really because uh, a lot of the entrepreneurs uh, we really loved following his tweets and his tweet storms and getting insight into the minds of smart people um they a lot of the time you know they've achieved success sure there's a lot of luck in everything but a lot of the time because they're smart and they're hardworking as well um interesting as well for michelle that you know where you are in life in terms of geography matters right like like being in these environments where you can work with smart people that back you matters, you know. The, sure, there's Definitely. smart people all over in the world, but they haven't had the opportunity and that's why um, ecosystems evolve that we discussed, I think, even about Berlin. You know, one, one smart person has success and invests in other smart people and it just the cycle continues. I'm sure there's mm. smart people everywhere in Africa, but but the ecosystem and, and the education just hasn't evolved to that point. So, you know, Michelle, you know, but life has a bit of the right place and the right time. And if you back that by hardworking and intelligent and giving things a go, amaz- amazing things can happen. Yeah, she does talk um, quite extensively about the roles some of her mentors have played in her success and how they've sort of shaped and uh, coached her, I guess, in uh, in founding her own company, which um, I, I found that section of the interview uh, interesting. And, yeah, I mean, interesting, she's a university dropout, mm. um, like a lot of famous people are, um, and she worked at service stations, I believe, yeah, and landed up managing some of those services, which is fantastic. And... Um, you know, I think university is being disrupted as well. You know, it really needs to be. It needs to be. I mean, it needs to essentially, except for the, the universities that really get um, face-to-face delivery well, the rest of them should all be online. Just put it all for online. The bulk, yeah. It's it's just a waste of, you know, to have these expensive buildings and expensive lecturers and it's expensive, right? And that's why it, if, if it's all online and you have a set of lectures that get gets reused for three years or four years, cheapest oh. chips. Yeah, true. I mean, but even then, I don't know that you can just recycle content like that. I think it needs to be consistently updated. Sure. 
depends what it is. I mean, classical Greek philosophy, I'm sure, um, sure. lectures on that will last a lot longer than, um, you know, I don't know, um, design trends or... Yeah, things, things that's true as well. It, it really depends on the subject. And a lot of, there are a lot of subjects that are fundamentals, that, you know, calculus and, and organic chemistry and things. That it hasn't changed in a million or not a million, but a long time. Yeah. And universities are expensive. So let's democratize that and give access to people. In the States, people land up, you know, and even in Australia, I've got friends with $20,000, $30,000 debts they have and... Mm. The only good thing um, here in Australia is that you can take out a hex loan. So the government pays it up front and you pay it back once you earn over a certain amount. Um, is there interest on that? Uh, a little bit. Right, but it's, it's not a it's commercial. It's not ridiculously. Well, they don't, um, they don't make out that it's ridiculously expensive. I think it's just uh, inflation. Yeah. yeah, which is fair enough. In the States, um, it can be tricky. So... Um, yeah, interesting that, um, you know, that I still think you get a lot of value out of degree. But anyway, uh, great chat with Michelle. Um, that's it for episode 88 of the It's a Monkey podcast. We come to you every week. The next two weeks, we're actually going to be um, playing some highlights and repeats of shows because it's Easter in Australia. Easter is a relatively big uh, holiday and um, we, we're going to be down a couple of people so for the next two weeks um, we're not going to have a live podcast but we will still publish a podcast please tweet us at monkey podcast please email us at podcast at it's a monkey.com we love to hear from you we hope you enjoyed the show and thanks for listening to us see you later